1: Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, and welcome to another episode of the New Books Network. I'm Tim Thurston, one of the hosts of the network, and today I spoke with Ying Yo about her new book, Folk Literati, Contested Tradition, and Heritage in Contemporary China. Professor Yo is an assistant professor of Chinese studies at Worcester College in Ohio and a second-time interviewee, having previously discussed with us her edited volume entitled Chinese Folklore Studies Today, Discourse and Practice. Today's conversation is a really fascinating one in which we took on everything from theories of tradition and heritage to the role of the individual in tradition and particularly this, this certain class of what she terms folk literati in China, as well as her individual case study about this uh, very local tradition in northern China, it was a really, it was a really interesting conversation in how we were able to balance both, sort of these broader theoretical issues with these very, very local and specific cases. And I hope you'll enjoy it. Thank you. Hello, and welcome to another podcast episode of the New Books Network. I'm Tim Thurston, one of the hosts of the network. And today I'm talking with Ziying Yo about her new book, Folk Literati, Contested Tradition and Heritage in Contemporary China, published with Indiana University Press. Professor Yo is an assistant professor of Chinese studies at Worcester College in Ohio, and a second time interviewee on the channel, having previously discussed with us her, uh, her edited volume entitled Chinese Folklore Studies Today, Discourse and Practice. Ziying, welcome back.
0: Thank you so much for having me back.
1: Uh, it's uh, it's absolutely my pleasure. Uh, seeing a few years and a pandemic have intervened since the last time you were on the podcast. So I was wondering if you could remind us a little bit about yourself. Tell us, what's your folklore origin
0: story? Uh Thank you. Uh, in our last interview, I mentioned how my childhood experiences of living with my grandparents in a rural village affected my understandings of living folklore and my passion for folklore. Sadly, both my grandparents passed away, but I carried their legacy and my passion for folklore never faded. Um, when I did my field work in different places in China, I felt that I always saw my grandparents among those ordinary people. As a folklorist, I study the values, beliefs, stories, and practices of ordinary people and highlight their role in making history and culture. Luckily, I encountered many professors, classmates, and friends who shared the same passion with me in my long journey to become a folklorist. So, for my educational background, I earned my first master's degree in Chinese studies, in Chinese literature with a concentration on folk literature at Beijing University and I then earned my second master's degree in folklore studies at the University of Oregon. So after that, I pursued my PhD at a, uh, the Ohio State University, which has uh, the, one of the best folklore studies programs in the world. Uh, I'm very lucky to have met so many great uh, folklorists who became my role models there. I think uh, this book um, is like a gift to express my gratitude to all those great folklorists and scholars who helped me become who I am now.
1: Oh, well, that's that's such a great introduction. Um and, and, and it makes me it actually leads me to my next question, which is sort of talk to us about how this book came to be. You sort of expressing it as a gift to um to 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 these these other mentors and these other people who have sort of helped you develop. Um, so at one point in the introduction, you said you've been working with this community since two thousand and seven. So tell us about this book and its sort of its history and how how you came to write it. Uh,
0: thank you for this great question. Um, this book is based on my dissertation completed at the Ohio State University. Yes, my field work in Hong Tong, Shanxi began in spring 2007 when, when I joined a group of Chinese folklorists to help local communities apply for the nomination of their living traditions as China's national intangible cultural heritage, known as SH for short. So with the greater support of Chinese folklorists, the local traditions that I study were inscribed in the second list of items of China's national ICH in 2008. Then in summer 2012 and in spring and summer 2013, I went back to conduct my dissertation fieldwork. So my advisor was Professor Mark Bender and Amy Schumann, noise Noyes also, were also on my dissertation committee. They gave me great advice on my fieldwork and also on my theoretical frameworks. During my fieldwork, I mainly lived with my hosts Wang Wei and his wife Miao Hongjun in Yangxie Village, where the Temple of Yao and the Temple of Erhuang's Nüying are located. Yao is one of the ancient Chinese sage kings. Erhuang's Nüying are Yao's. Uh, two daughters. Their temples uh, in Hong Tong were my main fieldwork sites. I met many local people who came to burn incense and asked for protection from the deities at the temples. Many of them kindly shared their personal stories, beliefs, and practices with me. My hosts were super kind and helpful, and they accompanied me as I participated in local temple files, as I interviewed many villages and traveled in Hong Kong. Um, I stayed in Yangxie during the most time of my fieldwork. Uh, I also stayed in the Li San Temple Complex for two weeks in summer 2012, um, and also I stayed in Wan for about one week. So many people. Uh, helped me uh, tremendously during my stay there. I also accompanied the annual ritual processions to travel throughout Hongtong in 2012 and in 2013, and many win- villagers opened their homes to me, generously offering delicious meals and clean beds. I owed the comp- uh, competition of this book uh, not only to my great mentors, advisors, professors, Mo. Ah, uh, role models, but also to many people that I encountered and talked with during my fieldwork, they have not only made their own history, but also made this book possible.
1: You're so humble with uh, uh, constantly um, uh, giving giving this thanks, but I think I think it also speaks to something that's such an important part of the folklore project. Yeah, the 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 idea that that this information and this knowledge is is not just uh, sort of stemming from, from your individual brilliance, but sort of the project, product of this uh, communal endeavor.
0: Um, yes, definitely. Um, so I think uh, as we talk about the different chapters, I will explain how I build on other scholars' scholarship to write this book. Definitely, it's like it's like a communal project.
1: Brilliant. Um, so now let's let's start sort of get into the book itself. Um, your introduction really nicely defines a number of key terms that you're examining in the book, and I'm wondering if you can help our listeners uh, understand how you approach them. Uh, perhaps the most important of these is that you distinguish between tradition and heritage. In the end, you choose to privilege the term tradition in your work. Can you take us briefly through? these terms and maybe a little bit of their history, briefly being uh, probably the operative one, um, and, and why you've chosen to use the term tradition over heritage for the most part.
0: Uh, thank you for these great questions. So I will start with the term tradition. Tradition is one of the core terms in folklore studies and is itself traditional in the field. As I discussed in my book, Edith Oren tracks its usage by John Aubrey in uh, 1696 and W.J. Thomas' use of local traditions in 1846. E. Sydney Heartland characterized folklore as the quote, science of tradition, quote, ends, in the last years of the 19th century. Since then, tradition has remained central to most definitions of folklore and is regarded as one of a few keywords in folklore studies. Francis Lee utterly establishes tradition as a prominent word in his proposed definition of folklore. Uh, Denben Amos has challenged this criteria in the definition of folklore, arguing that the traditional character folklore is an analytical construct by scholars instead of a cultural reality. In his influential 1984 essay entitled The Seven Strands of Tradition, Varieties in Its Meaning in American Folklore Studies, Ben Amos identified a variety of ways that folklorists have used tradition as law, as canon, as process, as mass, as culture, as long, and as performance. By drawing on sources from different publications during different periods, Ben Amos constructed an intellectual history of the construction, construction of the term folklore, uh, sorry, tradition um, by folklorists. Um, this re- reframing of tradition as a social and a cultural construction instead of a core of inherited es- essences was intertwined with the paradigm shifting in the humanities and the social sta- uh, social sciences in the 1970s and the 1980s. Since the early 1980s, scholars in different fields began to focus on a set of interrelated terms such as practice, action, interaction, activity, experience, performance, while a second interconnected set of terms related to the doer of all that doing, such as agent, actor, person, self, individual, and a subject. With this important paradigm change, tradition is no longer perceived as a natural essence or given, but as a social and a cultural construct. However, since the early uh, 1990s, tradition as a term has been, prob- has been problematized by Barbara Kirshenblatt, a uh, gameblatt known as BKG for short, in many of her works. In her presidential address to the American Folklore Society in 1993, BKG argued that folklore must reimagine itself in a transformed disciplinary and cultural landscape. She explored why the field of folklore studies historically constituted as the science of tradition, had so much difficulty coming to grips with the contemporary. Her objective is to return to the problem of tradition, not to defend folklore's canonical subject, but rather to take the popular misperceptions of folklore as uh, indicative of the truth of heritage as they emerge from contemporary practice. So BKG uh, promoted to use heritage instead of tradition, um, and he and she defines heritage as uh, quote the uh, transvaluation of the obsolete, the mistaken, the outmoded, the dead, and the defunct quote ends, and claims that quote heritage is created. Through a process of exhibition as knowledge, as performance, as museum display, and that uh, and that exhibition endows heritage thus conceived with this a second life. Um, despite its social and cultural advantages, heritage has also been problematized in intellectual discourse. Dennis Byrne advocates for resisting the tendency. Of heritage discourse to reduce culture to things and for countering its privileging of physical fabric over social life. Um, Like for me, I still use the term tradition in my own research. I define tradition as a historical process of different actors making remaking and negotiating cultural continuities and the changes between the past and the present mired in the integration of power struggles and the individual agency.
1: Oh, that's great. Um, and, and that last bit I think is particularly important for your project, this this question of power struggles and individual agency, uh, not least because you're trying to graft this, this uh, this theorization of tradition onto the Chinese context, uh, and, and or understanding certain certain individuals uh, in China uh, through some of the, uh, through their work in uh, traditional spaces, and so um, and and one of the key terms to this, and it's one of the terms in the title. It's also one of the terms that appears throughout the book. Is this one of folk literati, and? can you tell us a little bit more about how you define this term and then about the role of the literatus uh, historically and present and how that sort of separates from the intellectual in China?
0: Uh, Thank you for this great key question. In my book, I, I coined the term folk literati to describe a group of people who are skilled in classical Chinese, knowledgeable of local traditions, and capable of representing them in writing. Generally speaking, the ultimate goal of folk literati is to maintain cultural continuities as expressed in the vernacular concept that incense is kept burning, in the face of the many tensions and ruptures associated with practicing folk traditions, especially during uh, periods of political upheaval. The literati as a significant social group in cultural production have been widely studied in pre-modern Chinese history and literature. But this social group and the surrounding uh, cultural environment are believed to have disappeared in China during the 20th century with the fastest change um, in politics, economy and culture little attention has been paid to the living conditions of folk literati or their important role in remaking local traditions in contemporary China. So in my book, I draw on my ethnographic case study to present the important role of folk literati in remaking local histories, myths, legends, beliefs, and continuing stigmatized beliefs in local communities. Underlying why they shouldn't be excluded from the fields of folklore studies and the cultural studies.
1: I think that's really great. I think that's a really important intervention, um, as we'll see throughout throughout the rest of our discussion. Um, so uh, moving into sort of the body of the book proper, uh, like any good ethnography, Chapter 1 begins with sort of a discussion of the field site, um, this, this Hongtong County. Uh, And you said it's in Shanxi, Shanxi, right? Um, Yes. So um, can you give us, where is Hongtong County beyond that? uh, Where in Shanxi is it? Um, Can you tell us a little bit about the festival tradition you're examining and the community that maintains it?
0: Uh, Thank you so much for another great question. Um, uh, Hongtong is a county in the prefecture-level city of Linfen Ding, in the southwestern part of the Sanxi province. Uh, Shanxi province is located in the um, northern part of China, known as the Cradles of Chinese civilizations. So currently Hongtong is very well known as a major immigration transfer center in Ming dynasty. So today, a popular Chinese folk song goes, Where is my old hometown, the bigger pagoda tree in Hongtong, Tong, Well, what is the name of my ancestor's old home, the stalk nest under the pagoda tree? In Chinese, it's like, 问我老家,在何处山西红桶大槐树? Uh, uh, the local traditions that I study are called, in Chinese, um, which could be translated as the custom of visiting secret relatives in Hongtong. In the ICH application materials, the original title was Receiving Aunties and Greeting Nyang Visiting rel- Relative Activities. The term aunties and nian refer to e and the the two daughters of Emperor Yao, and also two wives of Emperor Shun. Emperor Yao was one of the five emperors that appear in records documenting the beginning of Chinese history. Yangxie village in Hongtong is believed to be the birthplace of the sacred animal Xie, who could distinguish good from evil and also the birthplace of Ying, Yao's daughter. Traditionally, uh, villagers in Yangxie, where well, the Temple of Yao and also the Temple of Erhuang and Nuyin are located, view themselves of, as the descendants of Emperor Yao. They call Emperor Yao grandpa and call Erhuang and Nuyin aunties. Residents around Lishan, where well, the Temple of Shun and also the Temple of Erhuang and Nguyin are located, call Erhuang and Nuyin niang niang. The, they view themselves as the descendants of Emperor Sun. The term receiving aunties is used by Yangxie people to refer to their annual ritual processions of receiving Er Huan de on the third day of the third lunar month. On that day, uh, participants in Yangxie carry Er Huan de divine Yin's divine sedentia to Lishan uh, to receive them back to Yangxie. The praise la- last for about uh, four days, and a large temple fair is held in Lishan. On the 28th day of the fourth lunar month, which is believed to be Emperor Yao's birthday, residents from Lishan um, come to Yangxie to receive the two sisters back home. A 10-day temple fair is held in Yangxie to celebrate um, Emperor Yao's birthday. During the annual ritual processions of receiving E er Huan de Nuyin, in both the third lunar month and the fourth lunar month, the parades usually pass more than 20 villages, where local people burn incense, provide free tea and snacks, and ask for blessings from the deities. In large villages, local people also play drums and guns, competing with the players from Yangxiao Sen. In some villages, free lunches and afternoon meals are also provided for participants. Um, Yangxie uh, residents of Lishan and Wan and accom- accommodate Yangxie residents respectively on the second and the third day of the third lunar month. Yangxie residents host Lishan and Wan and participants respectively on the 27th, 27th day and the 28th day of the fourth lunar month. Because of their distant connections with ancient sage kings Yao and Shun, villagers from Yangxie, Lisa, and Wan call each other relatives Qinqi or secret relatives Shenqing or Shenqing, which are believed to be more intimate and important than secular relatives. The local beliefs could be tracked back to the Ming dynasty for sure, but the local people claimed that they had practiced their traditions for more than 4,000 years. Uh, this is the brief introduction of the beliefs and the local practices uh, surrounding Yao and Shen, as well as the huan and Ngu Yin in Hong Tong.
1: Uh, that's, that's really helpful as an introduction. Thank you. Um, so chapter two then, then brings us into sort of the more uh, more perhaps ethnographic spaces, the folk literatus, um, and so it has this really interesting premise, this idea that you've already mentioned of xianghuo buduan this idea that uh, incense is kept burning. So, uh, what is and, and you talk about sort of the the role uh, examining the role of folk literati in transmitting, producing, and reproducing little local predi- local traditions. Um, can you? Expand a little bit on this concept of xianghuo buduan, and uh, describe why it's useful for thinking about the work that these folk literati do.
0: Uh, thank you for this brilliant question. As I told the story in my book, I uh, basically um, found the concept of the um, th- this concept of xianghuo buduan during my fieldwork. So on the summer day. Uh, In 2012, I sat at the temple of Er Huan and with several women from Yangxi who were on duty that day. Most of those women were in their 60s and 70s, and they strongly believed in their aunties. After learning my purpose of being at the temple, they began to talk about the history of their local traditions. They told me that during the Cultural Revolution, local beliefs were attacked and banned as feudal superstitions, and villagers from Yangxie were forbidden from receiving aunties. However, several people still insisted on continuing local traditions and went to present-day Lisan and undercover. One such folk hero was Qiao Guo Liang who once made his pilgrimage to Lisan and received two aunties back by himself in the early 1970s. Uh, because of Chao's action, he was sent to prison and he lost his official jobs. After sharing the stories about Chao Guo Liang, uh, one woman um, commented, at that time, the burning incense was not broken. The incense is kept burning. So at that moment, I realized this vernacular expression, Xianghuo uh, Buduan, was exactly what I was looking for to describe the cultural continuities within local, uh, local communities. Burning incense is often the most fundamental ritual act in worshipping, and the fragment of smoke is thick nowadays in various temples, in lineage halls, and above family altars. Although simple, the short phrase, incense is kept burning, conveys all the cultural meanings of continuing local traditions, continuing a family line or clan lineage, and becoming a moral self in China. Through the burning of incense for ancestors and deities, those carrying on local traditions are carrying themselves on physically and spiritually. One of the Essential issues that I explored in this book is how traditions are understood, reflected, and practiced on the ground by ordinary people in northern rural China. My key questions include uh, Is there a less abstract concept than, tra- concept than tradition in China to capture the sense of cultural continuities? Yes, that is the concept of Xianghuobuduan. Are there intentions associated with practicing these folk traditions. Yes. And who are the folk in the folk traditions? As I discussed in the book, uh, in the folk literature movement from 1918 to 1937, the folk were primarily defined as Chinese peasants who planted their fields and harvested their crops for the ruling classes intellectuals in the movement draw from the re- rebellion spirit embodied in folk literature to reje- reject the social and moral values of the elite Confucian tradition. Understandably, they excluded the literati from their view of the folk. From 1962 to 1966, during the Mao era, folk literature was used to promote socialist education campaigns, Within the socialist regime, the folk began to include workers, peasants, soldiers, and other working-class people set apart from the bourgeois and landlord classes. After the Cultural Revolution, Chinese folklorists started to reflect on the dominant Marxist theory in folklore studies and realized that everyone should be included as a member of the folk, without reference to class difference. So in this sense, the literati were finally included into the folk, even though too little attention has been paid to them. So in my book, I highlight the role of folk literati in transmitting, making and remaking local traditions on the ground, and I make their voice more visible.
1: That's really fascinating. Um, and I guess, I mean, it almost leads me to a, to sort of a follow-up question. And I guess I'm curious, um, the, it feels like often, uh, some of the things that I read in China, they, they sort of suggest that the, that folk literature is, or, or, and folklore, much of it is sort of this, uh, vernacular upspringing from the populace, uh, and but, at the same time, some of these examples like like that uh one folk literatus who sort of kept the the tradition alive during the nineteen seventies during the disruptions and I mean this idea of passing on this this keeping things alive this is is central to tradition, and it seems that sort of traditional power structures are also so important to these traditions, and I wonder how that gets navigated by some of these. Uh, by scholars in china but also some of these folk literati. How do they I mean the the sort of the competitions of sort of this this grassroots upswelling of sentiment versus um the the way that tradition can also sort of cement or reinforce traditional power structures um
0: this is very very complicated so I wanted to uh examine this question in the new context of the intangible cultural heritage uh, discourses. Uh, I think um, so in the in the chapter one, two, three, so I highlighted the contributions of folk literati in the seventies, uh, 1980s and 1990s. Definitely during that moment um, because of the ideology, the local traditions uh, were banned or or uh, stigmatized during that during that time. So we see how folk literature tried to get through all the um, like the power structures to uh, continue that traditions. Uh, but uh, in the new context, so like in the in two thousand eight the local traditions were promoted as China's national ice age, So at that moment we like scholars may feel released and say, okay, you see all the traditions are cherished. Um, so I think uh, like you see the government, the whole government um is um supporting the local traditions and so on. Um so I think my own research uh is Complicated in both ways. So during the 1970s, 1980s, 1990s, uh, when the local state didn't support the local traditions, the folk literati found ways to um, fight against the power structures and also to continue their traditions. And then in this new century, um, as I argued in the final chapter, Actually, the whole project disempowered the local traditions, and also uh, disempowered the local communities to protect their own traditions. As we could see from the final chapter, the new actors entered the stage, and they dominated, especially the government. The government institutions uh, dominated um, in the in both discourse and the practice. And then, folk literati, local communities uh, are excluded. Um, so I think the issue is very, very complicated. I'm trying to highlight the dynamics of tradition making and the heritage making on the ground to situate all the situations, um, the case in very specific contexts.
1: Absolutely, and I and I think that that sort of really comes out. Uh, in the next chapter, chapter three, we'll get to sort of the whole heritage thing at the end. I mean because it, I mean it's it's amazing that you've written a whole book, but then heritage is just at the end because it feels like heritage is so all-encompassing when we talk about traditions in China today. Um, but so chapter three um, sort of takes on what you're just sort of this sort of competitive process of myth making and historical narrative and the literatus and the literatis, as a class, their role in sort of in myth making and in historical narrative. And you do this in chapter three through the examination of one literatus, folk literatus uh, named Li Shijie. Um, can you tell us about Li Shijie and uh, how how does he his experience help you to read myth as a meta discourse and as a discursive act?
0: Uh, thank you so much for this great question. Uh, Li Xuezhi is a star contributor um, to my research. Uh, Sadly, he he passed away in 2020, after my book was first published. Um, So as he is one of the key contributors of my book, I would love to share his life stories in details. Uh, Li Xuezhi was born in a very poor peasant family in Lishan in 1928 even though he was very talented, uh, but his family was very poor and couldn't afford him um, to go to school. So his teachers took a chance to support him to finish elementary school. And then later, um, the local nationalist government um, supported him to finish his uh, middle school. And Wendy was 17 years old. Um, He married the daughter of one of his school teachers. Uh, but unfortunately, his father passed away two months after his wedding, so they had, they had to start uh, to work to earn a living to support his family. His school principal recommended him to work for Liang a uh, nephew of Yan Xishan. Um, Yan Xishan was a warlord who controlled Shanxi from 1911 to 1949. Li Xuezhi then became a junior officer in one of Liang's spy organizations and later was promoted to secretary in a high-level spy organization's headquartered in Taiyuan. But his career in Yan Xishan's nationalist government ended very quickly when the communists took control of most of Shanxi in 1949. Yan Xishan fled to Taiwan and Liang Huazi was named as the chairman of the Sanxi province. For six months, Lianghua Zi led a savage resistance until the communist troops finally entered the Taiyuan. Lianghua Zi killed himself, and also more than 500 nationalist officials killed themselves. And before they committed suicide, they burned a prison filled with communist soldiers captured during the civil war. Li Xuezhi was Only 21 years old uh, when that happened. He left for Beijing, wanting to follow um, Yan Xishan to Taiwan, but he couldn't get any ticket. He was frightened that the communists might kill him after liberation. He was sent to study in a special training group for defended nationalists. He stayed in the training group for about uh, seven months. Later, he was assigned to the uh, Reform Through Labor Farm in Yanbei. That farm was a labor camp for political prisoners and the people from the older ruling class who were trained to farm. So in 1955 Mao Zedong launched a second wave of anti-counter-revolution campaigns and many political opponents and capitalists were sent pr- to prison or killed. Uh, Li Xuezi was frightened and knew that he didn't have any future. His wife was still waiting for him at home, but he forced her to divorce him. In the anti revolutionary campaigns, Li Xuezi was sent to a prison in Taiyuan where he stayed with Japanese soldiers, nationalist officials, and Yan Xishan senior officers. Li was accused of killing a communist when he had served in Lianghua's spy organization. Since Lianghua committed suicide, Li became the scapegoat for the murder. So he was sentenced to 12 years in prison. Um, Li Xuezi was then sent to another labor camp and was released in 1966. When Li Xuezi came out of prison in 1966, the Cultural Revolution started. He was given a counter-revolutionary hat and uh, uh, became a prisoner out of prison during the 10 years of the Cultural Revolution from 1966 to 1976. So After suffering for 27 years, Li Xuezhi eventually received his freedom when Deng Xiaoping initiated the reform era in 1978. Li Xuezhi was almost 50 years older then, so he spent most of his a first life in prison. His background in classical Chinese and uh, his nationalist political connections caused him to suffer tremendously during the Moist area, but he eventually took advantage of this background and made his fame in his during the Reform Area. Through the rebuilding of the Sun Temple and the reconstruction of local rituals and narratives, Li Xuezhi reasserted his authority as a local cultural and moral leader. Rules denied him in the previous eras. Because of his dedication to rebuilding the string temple and promoting string culture in Lishan, Li Xuezhi received high respect from the local people and also the local government. He also wrote many steady texts in Lishan, and published prolifically about local history and beliefs. In this chapter, I examine the historical process of the construction of myths in modern China, and use local people's views to understand the stories of Yao and Sun, which are reified as myths by scholars. I show how the学者自 has remade Yao and Sun's stories in Hong Tong in the 1990s, how he has perceived himself through the reconstruction of contested history, and how he has competed and negotiated with other folk literati in the process of myth-making on the ground. Yes, I interpret myth as a meta-discourse on the basis of which social actors can construct social borders and also as a discursive act through which actors pursue certain cultural, political, and economic goals. In my ethnographical case study, the cultural figures involved in constructing myths and local history use a diversity of historical and cultural resources and reorganize local discourses in response to a specific place and a certain time. When myth is interpreted as a meta-discourse and a discursive act, it is open to continuing contestations of meaning and function. The cultural reproduction of myth is not only driven by different actors, but by different motivations among competing agents. This process leaves space for new actors to move myths into new places, in new settings, and. Uh, to make new stories meaningful for new audiences.
1: That's amazing. What a life uh, for Li Xuezhi, That's just incredible. Um, and, and really helps to sort of demonstrate those points brilliantly. Thank you. Um, moving forward from his experience, uh, chapter four takes on this idea of tradition ecology um, to reinterpret the balance of both cultural continuity and innovation and tradition reconstruction. Um, can you tell us a little bit about how you see this term of tradition ecology and how it helps you on un- how it helps you understand um, the 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 traditions under under examination for this book?
0: Thank you for this great question. In my book, I draw on Laurie Hanko's term tradition ecology to interpret both cultural continuities and the changes in the remaking of local myths and legends in Hong I propose propose it as a framework to study the dynamic process of tradition-making in contemporary China. This framework provides me with an approach to look at the interrelations between different social actors remaking local traditions and at the complicated relationship between history and place, between discourse and practice, and between individuals and uh, local beliefs. The ecology I speak of refers to a process of interactive change, adaptation, refreshment, and innovation. It implies neither a nostalgia for a romantic and harmonious past nor a call to protect the past as it is frozen at a particular time. Kong's main concerns are with cross-cultural comparisons, and uh, he holds an essentialist viewpoint to interpret the substance of tradition as an organic given. Although I use his term, but I didn't carry on the his essentialist view. In my studies context, tradition ecology mainly refers to a complex process of balance. Um, in cultural continuities and changes on the ground. It is used to interpret uh, the dynamic process of debating and remaking Er Huan and Nui Yin's conflict legends by folk literati and ordinary people in Hong Kong. It is a conceptual tool to understand the interactions between the written and the oral, between legends and rituals, between history and place, and between individuals and folklore. The interrelationships of individuals' legends, beliefs, practices, history and place shape and uh, reflect the cultural landscape within local com- communities and uh, encompass the sustainable future for local people.
1: So. How does that work in the uh, in the case of the traditions that you're examining? how does this tradition ecology sort of um, work work in your case study?
0: Um, so I think in the in chapter four, I use the, this uh, tradition ecology framework to interpret the conflict stories uh, and legends of uh, Huang Nüying. so the one of the most popular and influential Legends in Hongtong uh, is about the competition and the conflicts and the fight between Huang and the because in the local legends they competed with each other to uh, win the first queen status because both of them were married uh, off by Yao to Shun. Um, so there were three competitions in the stories and uh, all those stories were intertwined with the local rituals and beliefs um, and also, the stories themselves are controversial, as I um, illustrated in the book. Like uh, folk literati from different places, like remade the stories differently. Um, I I basically tried to um, to see how local people received all the different versions and the different variants um, of the, these legends. I think that basically there was no agreement <laughs> about the details of the stories, so I tried to use the tradition ecology to explain how, like those legends and the beliefs, are remained on the ground to cater to local people's needs, to promote their individual agendas, and how local people um, receive those changes. Basically, it's like it's like a butterfly effect. So when when the folk literature has changed some details um, in the legends and it caused other changes and side effects and conflicts and none of the folk literature could solve all the conflicts and tensions. Um, So I'm trying to use the tradition ecology to include everything in it and for myself I don't have any solutions
1: that's really fascinating. And, but, it, you know, it's not necessarily our role to propose solutions uh, so much as to to recognize the, uh, the phenomena, right? I mean, yeah. really fascinating, really interesting. Um, okay. Um, so moving on ahead to Chapter 5, you then sort of, in Chapter 5, through examining folk literati as a social group within local contexts, you propose that tradition can be, uh, conceptualized as a dynamic process of transfer of appreciation, uh, an ability to understand the meaning or importance of a valued practice or cultural process. Can you expand on this idea a little bit and describe how uh, your interlocutors showed this?
0: Um, thank you for another brilliant question. So this idea is inspired by um, my professor, uh, Dorothy Noyes. In her influential article entitled "Tradition Three Traditions, um, she identifies three main um, conceptualizations of tradition in Western scholarship. Uh, First, tradition as a communicative transaction. Second, tradition as a temporal ideology. Third, tradition as a communal property. She concludes by proposing that scholars explore yet another working definition of tradition, quote, the transfer of responsibility for a valued practice or performance, quote ends. Uh, following her direction, I propose that tradition be conceptualized as the transfer of appreciation, uh, an ability to understand the meaning or importance of a valued practice, or cultural process. For the transmission of meta-knowledge and practice, ordinary participants and practitioners should be able to appreciate the values, meanings, and functions, regardless of whether this full awareness or understanding reflects and is shaped by internal motivations, external forces, or both. When tradition is conceptualized as a dynamic process of the transfer of Appreciation. The roles of a variety of local local actors came into play. So, in my book, I analyze how folk literati accumulate their cultural sources and build their social networks re- when remaking local traditions. The view of their roles in their communities depends on how deeply they can appreciate local beliefs and history, and how effectively they can present represent. That understanding in writing, the, appreciate, the appreciation of ordinary participants and the practitioners is important in the process of transmitting and reproducing local legends, myths and beliefs. Different levels of appreciation shape and reflect the active agency of individuals and folk groups. This appreciation assumes an understanding of our past in the present and an ability to create a future that aligns with the past. Um, I, I think as folklorists, we start with this this appreciation as we move forward to explore the changing dynamics of tradition.
1: That's really fascinating. Um, that That is going straight from your book and mind into one of my articles. Um, but I guess I'm curious, uh, do you see this as, as maybe something that is more specific to a Chinese uh, Chinese context? Or is this something that you think is maybe applicable beyond, beyond the Chinese context, this idea of uh, tradition as transfer of appreciation?
0: Um, I think both. Um, I think it's super useful in the Chinese context because we always see the tensions um, between the officials, between the state and the local society or between officials and uh, ordinary people. Since that tension sometimes is intense, I think the appreciation then becomes very, very crucial in the Chinese context. Uh, but I think it's also applicable um, in different places all over the world. As human beings, we need to appreciate our own heritage and legacy, Um, that's always the beginning part. And then we we may carry on the responsibilities to live on and carry on those traditions.
1: So it's not necessarily tradition or or appreciation as a replacement of uh, responsibility, but as a precursor for taking up responsibility.
0: I think both, yes. Both are very important
1: very interesting. Okay. Brilliant. Thank you. Um, and so uh, moving on to the final chapter, uh, you have this discussion of how, uh, and, and and we've kind of discussed it on and off throughout, but the, how Zotong, Xishu, uh, became recognized as national heritage in China and the shifting roles of different actors in this process. How has heritage recognition changed the tradition, and how have folk literati been in, been involved in this process?
0: I covered part of this question uh, in my previous right. discussion, um, but uh, here I just want to highlight that uh, the shifting power relations among Sioux and the temporary construction associations and the local state in the process of pro- protecting local traditions as SH. I argue that the heritage-making process has not empowered the key folk institutions, including She and the Temple Reconstruction Associations, and folk literati to protect local traditions with and for local people, but has disempowered them and put local communities at the bottom of the power relations. Therefore, exaggerating pre-existing inequalities between Uh, folk society and and, uh, the local state. In the book, I show how folk literati have actively participated in the annual ritual processions of receiving deities and uh, in temple files, and uh, how they have recorded their own history, myths, legends, and beliefs in their own terms. I believe on the ground it is folk literati and numerous other individuals who kept who keep incense burning and keep local traditions alive but their role in the process of heritage making is not fully recognized by intellectuals and the state the anonymous and semi-anonymous individuals have done the actual work in tradition protection and the heritage management and their agency shouldn't be excluded in both discourse and practice. I think this is a key argument of my book.
1: That's brilliant. I, I mean, I, I completely agree. I think there's sort of the importance of some of these local intellectuals or, or literati um, too frequently goes overlooked, but they do play this this incredibly important brokerage role, right? Um, in, in Both in recognition of... Both in heritage recognition, but also in keeping these traditions alive to the extent that it's that it has been done. Really brilliant. Um, all right. So uh, I understand your time is limited. So uh, I think I'll wrap up there. But before I let you go, um, can I ask you what you're working on now?
0: Um I'm writing my new book uh, titled Impacts of the COVID-19 Pandemic on Chinese Women in the United States. So this book started in early 2000, uh, 2020. So I collaborated with a group of amazing scholars in China. Um, so for my own research, for my own project, I conducted uh, 72 interviews. Um, so I interviewed, uh, because of the tribal bans, I couldn't go back to China to do more fieldwork. So I started to do the virtual ethnography and uh, interviewed people on, um, either on WeChat or um, Zoom. Um, so for this book itself, I wanted to explore how Chinese and Chinese American women Um, have experienced and responded to the double threats of the COVID-19 virus and the racism during the pandemic in the United States, and how the pandemic has changed their lives and identities. Uh, In addition, I'm also working on two other new projects. The first project is about uh, fengio alcohol-making as intangible cultural heritage in contemporary China. Uh, it's uh, the research itself is the combination of both food studies and heritage studies, and another new project is about the transmission of Buddhism among lay women in contemporary China. Uh, it's very challenging for me to write the COVID-19 book, as we are still living through the pandemic by ourselves. I think the two other projects help me achieve peace and tranquility in some ways. I think it's a very good balance. And in addition to research, I'm teaching a new course uh, at the College of Worcester, um, Anti-Asian Racism. It's actually required by students, by our Asian and Asian American students in the March for Asian Lives movement. Um, in addition to my teaching, I'm also working with a fantastic group of Asian and Asian American scholars and activists to promote the significance of Asian American history in, in K-12 education in different states uh, in the United States. I'm trying to do more co- community service so that I want uh, I could contribute more to building a more diverse, equal and inclusive community, not only at my college, but also beyond.
1: I mean, this is all so brilliant and you are so unstoppable and indefatigable. Um, really amazing. I can't wait to see the product of this important of all of this important work. Um, and wish you the best of luck in, in, in completing all of those projects in a timely fashion. If anybody can do it, you can. Um, thank you so much, Ziying, for your time. Um, we will not take any more of yours as you continue that very important work.
0: Thank you so much for all your encouragement. I will keep fighting. Thank you.
1: All right. Thanks.